Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March 31st, 2021. As always, I'm talking to you from my home office in San Francisco. I'm very lucky to have a home office. Many of you may be thinking of going back to the office. Some of you might indeed even be back in the office on this Thursday. I think Thursdays in the office are pretty miserable. Uh, we're all looking forward to Friday. The headlines, uh, at least from the New York Times, in terms of going back to work are that everybody is not okay, whatever that means, but back at work anyway. Uh, the New York Times specializes in us not being okay. Um, apparently, according to Time, nobody wants to go back to the office as much as white men. I wonder why white men want to go back to the office. I'm a white man and I don't want to go back to the office. Um, and then we have lots of pieces online about if you are indeed going back to the office, you're supposed to do these 10 things first to have a stress-free return. Nobody has given more thought to the future of the office than my guest today, my old friend, Julia Hobsbawm, who's joining us from her home office in North London. She's the author of the Nowhere Office. And I have to add that I blurbed this book. I said, a masterful analysis of the reinvention of work in a post office world. So congratulations, um, uh, Julia, I don't know what you deserve to get that blurb, but you definitely deserved it. Thank you very much. And I love your Freudian slip, Andrew, that it's March 2021. It's actually March 2020. Oh, did I say 2021? Whoops, 2022. Yeah, but we're, we're all in a terrible time warp. We've lost time and time has become very asymmetrical. So it's perhaps something we can talk about in the future of the office. But I don't know what I did to deserve your blurb either, but I'm very grateful for it. Well, are you in your nowhere office, Julia? Where I'm literally in my nowhere office, which is my living room, um, which luckily I'd had redecorated three weeks before the pandemic for the first time in about 10 years. So at least being um, adjusting to teleconferencing working life was a, a little bit more pleasant. Yes, I'm in my I gave up my actual office in the in the early months of the pandemic. And um, I am in my nowhere office, although the the argument and the thesis I'm putting forward is not, in fact, an argument for no office. Um, but it is to say that we no longer need to use place uh, in the way that we did to work. So I get a lot of stuff on this office issue, Julia. Where are we in terms of whether or not people are really going back? You read so many different things in the media, in the Times, in the Post, in the FT about whether or not people are really going back. Women are going back. Men aren't going back. Some people are going back. Where, where exactly are we in on March 31st, 2022? I won't make the Freudian slip again and talk about 2021. Well, first of all, I'll just answer a live question that's popped in. What's the book about? The book is about this moment in the story of professional work, knowledge work, uh, which is like no other. And it's called The Nowhere Office because I believe we are nowhere where we were pre-pandemic. We are nowhere uh, 
near going back and probably will never go back to the old norms of the office. And I place the book in a historical context, looking back to the end of the Second World War, the last time the world arguably faced a great, big, united sense of reset. Where we're at in the office, Andrew, is that fascinatingly, and slightly luckily for me, because I I, I put, I gambled when I wrote this book and said, I'm going to say that we're not going back to the office as we were pre-pandemic. And quite a lot of people said, oh, yes, we are. Um, what's really fascinating is that uh, governments and big business have, have found that their workforces um, have gone against the grain and gone against expectation, which is they have basically not wanted to go back to the office full time. And so the emergence of hybrid work has come in and hybrid work is now completely normalized, even though it's not yet been fully put into practice. It was adopted very early as a concept. And the so-called great resignation, which is actually statistically small, but culturally significant, when about 4% of workers in America suddenly um, flip the switch and, and change jobs, that trend is in fact accelerating. And so the Nowhere Office represents this moment, this liminal moment, when absolutely none of the old norms around fixed property, city centres, working hours, um, and our assessments of uh, being in-person versus remote, all of that has been upended. And I should just say, I think this is, in fact, an incredibly important, overdue and positive moment. As you know, Julia, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, from the edge of Silicon Valley. I, I guess from my point of view, maybe it's because I've, I've no one would ever employ me, so I've never really worked for a corporation. But did the, the world of the office, the traditional world which you're imagining, did it really exist before uh, March 2020? I mean, weren't most people beginning to work from your notion of the nowhere office? Is there such a sharp break that you're suggesting? Well, I think it's a proverbial tipping point. We're eternally grateful, aren't we, to Malcolm Gladwell for having coined that phrase. And the point that I make in the book by opening it with some historical context is that you're absolutely right. In the 13 or so years immediately pre-pandemic, um, from around 2007, in fact, specifically 2007, I would argue, when the iPhone came into being, when the Airbnb came into being, when, when the world of work became fully mobile and mobility began to be prized and indeed priced in. That was the beginning of what I'm calling the co-working years, a period of time in which working and office life began to be a curious mix of increasingly glamorous masthead symbolic buildings, which people were in transit through most of the time, you know, conferences and on aeroplanes and, and the rise of co-working itself. WeWork began in 2010. And of course, co-working is the great big winner post-pandemic in terms of office space, which we can perhaps talk about. But to your point, was this completely new? No, but what was new is a coalescence of a number of different factors absolutely at the same time. Culture, technology, attitudes to flexibility, um, and indeed uh, the, the, the requirement for physical safety to 
to work differently. And so going back afterwards was inevitably not going to be the same, despite that being in some some executives' uh, heads. Julia, I've heard arguments both for and against going back to the office. Some people say they're incredibly lonely at home. My son, for example, spent a year in New York working alone. He never even, it was his first job, so he never even met the people he was working with. Uh, Other people are more than happy not to make the commute. What's your sense in terms of the types of people who do and don't want to go back to the office? Is there a demographic uh, divide? Is there a gender divide? Is there an economic divide? Is there a racial divide? Um, well, the global data from... Se- so I'm a, a sort of armchair sociologist, Andrew. I like to look at the trends. I like to look at what social social uh, data is showing me. Um, well, at least you're, like- uh, uh, you're, you're, you're a sociologist in your nowhere office, Julia. Correct, correct. And um, the trends are contradictory. Um, Microsoft, that does probably the largest and most significant study year on year, the Microsoft Trends Survey, um, they uh, cover about 31,000 people in 66 countries of Microsoft employees. Uh, they just put out their second trend survey since the pandemic. Um, they they found very early on the contradiction that the truth is the data shows that we want um, to have our cake and eat it. All of us across the generation Zs to boomers, uh, men and women, um, we, we, we love the idea of the office to some degree for all sorts of reasons, especially for the young, everything from better coffee, better amenities to being trained and mentored and company, but also working women, people who bore the brunt of the pandemic, those women by something like 68% that Ipsos Mori found, Ipsos Data found, also want the flexibility to pick and choose. And so some sort of genie has been let out of the bottle, a genie that was floating around in rather a latent way pre-pandemic where other norms were more prevalent. The norm to be, um, you know, rising up the greasy pole and getting pay and perks and 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 movement and busyness has been replaced now by a very interesting different sensibility which is work life balance which is purpose which is meaning now the caveat on that which i think is really important to stress is a it's very early in the game you know recessions in many parts of the world and inflation Maybe those who want full presenteeism will win simply in being able to lure people back um, with, you know, heated offices and uh, and jobs. But the evidence at the moment is that if you like the global north, the developed economies are burnt out, are exhausted and don't want to work in the same way that they did pre-pandemic. In fact, burnout was officially recognised by the World Health Organization not that long before the pandemic as um, being um, classified as a contributory cause of disease, not a disease in itself, but a contributory cause, which was quite an important moment. That was in 2019. So at the moment, the developed economies and the global north, if you like, are saying we definitely don't want it how it was before. But A, 
we may be forced back, but also our competitors in the developing world, they may literally eat our lunch and say, we'll take your 80 hour, hour weeks. We'll take you your full-time presenteeism. Thank you very much. So it's unclear to me how um, fixed this trend is, but what we can say right now, as in 31st of March 2022, on the eve of America going back to work, as the pandemic does appear to be, um, uh, you know, trailing out, uh, that no one who works in the professional world of knowledge-based, office-based, technology-enabled work, anyone who is a hybrid have and has that opportunity wants to take it and no one wants to go back full-time to the office apart from the C-suite, the executives. And, and the white men. What about the white men? Yeah, especially, well, because the demographic of people who still run, generally speaking, the C-suites around the world are you know, pale, male, and arguably, in some cases, not all, um, you know, pale, male, stale is what the term is. Are they, so, is it because they're sexual predators? Is it because they're okay. lonely? I, no, I it's about what you're used to. It's about um, the fact that from a management point of view, it's, it's a bit of a headache managing hybrid let's be honest and one of the big arguments in my it's book about and- trust isn't it julia you can't the, the whole point of the office is you can watch over your workers whereas online you can't unless you well, use some sort of amazon software it's definitely about control it's definitely about surveillance and control um, and certainly it is absolutely clear that um people want agency and autonomy and that that drives productivity. I mean, one of the interesting things is that when I say I was looking back historically at the trends around work is that, you know, the campaigns for fair working conditions hinged around working hours as early as the um, 18th century, you know, the Welsh uh, philanthropist Robert Owen, uh, then you had Lord Leverhulme adopting the idea of, um, of you know, eight hours um, leisure, eight hours uh, rest, eight hours work, um, and and finding, incidentally, at the, at the, at, in the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, that that in fact, if you if you had that balance, you got better productivity. And I, what I'm suggesting in my book is that. We lost that sense that there is a benefit to um, capitalism if, in fact, uh, workers in, in, in across the blue collar and the white collar uh, are treated fairly economically and have time to rest. And we are, in the developed world, exhausted and we want to work differently. Now, the managers themselves are exhausted and leadership I suggest, um, just to sort of throw the full provocative uh, position at you, I think leadership with a capital L is wildly overrated, massively underdelivered on, and it's one of the reasons why the board and the C-suite was experiencing pushback from different genders, different classes, different races. It's interesting, Julia, you, you mentioned the L word, leadership. You introduced me to Barbara Kellerman, a lovely lady who I interviewed yesterday, and 
she implied, I think, that most books and most thinking on leadership is a bit of a scam. So I think she's on your team. Again, it seems to be a bit of a, a male discipline, uh, excusing the pun when it comes to controlling people. We are talking with the great Julia Hobsbawm, not the first or the last person to comment on, not the last, first or the last Hobsbawm to comment on Capitalism, her new book, The Nowhere Office, Reinventing Work and the Workplace of the Future, is so good that it even got blurred by me. A masterful analysis of the reinvention of work in a post office world. I couldn't agree more. We are going to take a break now and uh, we're going to come back with Julia. I want to talk more personally, Julia, about your own experience with work. What led you to write the book? And about your interesting work for Demos in terms of redesigning the quote-unquote office of the future. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds with Julia Hopsbaum, the author of The Nowhere Office. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We are back with Julia Hobsbawm, the author of The Nowhere Office. Julia is an old friend of mine, and she's written a number of books before, one of which was Fully Connected, and another, The Simplicity Principle, both quite personal in their own ways. Julia, your own experience with work, I think, uh, informs uh, certainly your, your other books and, and, and this book as well, The Nowhere Office, Reinventing Work and the Workplace of the Future. You've had some ups and downs when it comes to work. How, how do you tie in your own personal history with the narrative of The Nowhere Office? Well, I'm an entrepreneur, um, a micro-entrepreneur, and I've essentially always wanted the mobility and freedom that I'm now observing lots of other people want as well. So I was a bit atypical, even though um, I had rather a good pedigree uh, through my father's name and so on. And 
I went to, you know, a famous school in North London. I was actually a bit of an academic dud. I failed exams. I worked my way up from being a typist in a small publishing house. And I sort of made my own luck. Um, My career is now um, rather a coveted kind of career. Uh, what Professor Herminia Ibarra of of, uh, London Business School calls, um, uh, I think she calls it curly and others call wavy. Um, But the truth is that I have worked in large offices. I've worked in the BBC briefly. I worked for Penguin Books briefly. I've been a consultant to some very large businesses. But I've always prized the ability to sort of leave and come back. Um, and I, I also am an accidental, really, uh, management nerd. Uh, I've, I've been interested in management and business literature all my life. Don't ask me why. I just am. Um, big fan of Peter Drucker, big fan of Charles Handy, uh, big fan of people like Barbara Kellerman, who I also did interview for the book. And I'm really interested in what makes organizations work and not work. And I have held the view for some time that organizations that operated out of offices, um, as in every organization, because up until the pandemic, everybody, you know, really was dominated by an HQ. um, I didn't think work worked. And I wanted to change that. I'm nevertheless actually quite nostalgic about my own um, working in offices I mean you know one's relationship to offices is like relationships to people almost almost like love affairs actually I feel nostalgic for them and I do think that the argument that some young people are going to miss out on forming relationships to places will is true what about Um, the uh, Julia what about the the balance. Uh, we had a show with Bill Burnett last year. He has a new book out, Designing Your New Work-Life Balance. How do we balance work and life when the office becomes our home and we're never able to leave the office? Well, let's just be clear, Andrew, the internet killed the office, the always-on era. You know, the transition from a piece of technology that, you know, in, in its infancy in the office, the tech was the typewriter. You know, if you then move to um, uh, the, uh, you know, middle of middle of last century and then by about the mid 70s when the computer came in. But the computer was about as distant as my um, product placement book is, you know, away from you. Then you had the desktop, then you had the laptop. But it was really this, the smartphone that has brought as I say, mobility is a both a prized thing, but a reality. And, and those, I've written a lot about this in previous books. It's that disintegration of the boundary um, between your personal self and your professional self, also with the arrival of social media. So if you think about it, your brand as an individual and your brand that you work for are, are on social media. I personally find it slightly silly when people say on their Twitter handle, writing in a personal capacity. Because, you know, if a scandal hits, there's no such thing. You bring your brand down with you. And so that osmosis has been around for a long time. And 
what has happened in the pandemic is it just sort of made that quite physical, which is why we've seen such an upsurge in home refurb and, um, you know, the it has brought into the room, if you like, in the conversational room, the reality that we've been struggling and continue to struggle with barriers and boundaries, which are fundamentally led by the digital experience. Um, now, it's true that when we all went in on a commute to the office, um, that was a boundary, and some people welcomed that boundary. But as I say, by the time the pandemic hit, um, you know, the International Labour Organization, well before the pandemic, the ILO came up with data that showed that um, American men were working something like uh, 2,000 hours a year more than their Julie, counterpart. you mentioned uh, talking about the ILO. I did an interview uh, this week with Daisy Pitkin, well-known American labour organiser. She has a new book out on the line, a story of class solidarity and two women's epic fight to fight a union uh, to, to, to fight to build a union how does the nowhere office affect labor organization unions does it create a universal precariat who uh who can't be organized into unions or do we need to rethink the nature of labor organizations in the age of the nowhere office i think it's a really really important question and i think the latter um, if you look back to the very origins of the structures of the working day as we know it, it was the it was trade unions and the trade union movements in Britain and America that created, as I said before, the eight hour day. Um, and I think that it's interesting to note that the trade unions somehow, certainly in the UK, slightly lost their way in leading the way as being the voice of this massive cultural change. So um, I do believe that this could be a moment either for trade unions and organised uh, labour to come more into, uh, into centrality, because of course membership has been universally declining, or for some of the some of the best aspects of unions to be deployed more successfully inside organizations by which i mean the ability to convene create community rather than just campaign so the model for my book the nowhere office was studs turkle's wonderful book in 1974 working in which he interviewed hundreds and hundreds of workers across america and gave them voice and uh, there was a particular trade union organiser that I quote in the book talking about that moment of inclusion when you see someone who's a colleague and they're not sure and they don't know that they fit in and they're new and you and you say, come on, you're with us, you belong. And that sense of belonging as much as of campaigning for rights is something that I think the trade unions used to do more than they do now. And that is a need in the nowhere office, organised belonging. Uh, Julia, what about the issue of happiness? We've done so many shows on happiness inside and outside the office. Did a show, uh, the Wall Street Journal writer, Catherine Says, written a really interesting new book on Tony Shea, who was the founder of Zappos, the evangelist yeah. of happiness, who led a, a particularly miserable life. Uh, her yeah. book is called Happy at Any Cost. He died miserable. Yes. Is this making us happier ultimately? Can we measure it? I know you're 
you're a lady who does a lot of metrics. Can we is, is happiness something you can and should measure, or do we need to be more anthropological or perhaps even creative in trying to figure out whether this is a better or worse future, this nowhere office? Well, as usual, Andrew, you ask about seven questions in one. Let me try and unpick it. I think, I mean, happiness is being measured. In fact, the Global Happiness Index, I think, has just been published. Um, There are some metrics and people like Professor Sir Richard Layard at the London School of Economics very, very memorably sort of put happiness and a measurement on the map and the OECD's um, well-being index has interested me for for a long time, and you have, of course, in two thousand and seven, the the Sen Fitusi Stieglitz um, review on well-being, which really was the first to suggest that there is an economic measurement to social capital and belonging. Uh, which is sort of where I'm more comfortable discussing happiness rather than happiness as in are you happy? Because I think that's a more existential question, to be honest with you. But I think to be well, as in to be well treated, to be well remunerated, to be well managed, that is what I call not happiness. I call that social health. And I'm very interested in the correlation between the World Health Organization's unamended 1948 definition of health as the presence of physical, mental and social well-being, not merely the absence of injury or disease, and I quote, and in fact, we're all across and all over the physical and the mental, but, you know, that social well-being, what did that mean in 1948? What does it mean now? Well, it means that your sense of yourself, your sense of belonging, your access to all sorts of things, um, can and should be measured and factored in. And so if that's what we mean by happiness, then then I'm all for it. But what I'm more for is that we drop the pretense that work ran well, that work was fair. I'm very interested in the work of Jeffrey Pfeffer at Stanford. Um, He has brilliantly articulated for a long time the toxic workplace and the cost to the American economy of the toxic workplace. Um, you, you know, it, across the world, guarosa, death from overwork in, in Korean and so on and so forth. So yeah. there's a lot of evidence that the world of work wasn't working well. And rather well, than... Well, love you back, as, as Sarah Jaffe wonderfully wrote. We had Sarah on the show. Um, yeah. You, you, you bring up a, a Stanford academic, Julia. So let me throw one back at you and bring up a Berkeley academic, always smarter and more hardworking than the Stanford version. Caroline Chen teaches sociology at Berkeley. She has a really interesting new book out. I don't know if you've seen it, but I think you'd find it very interesting. Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. And what she's found is that tech companies, and she suggests that it's not just tech, she's seeing it on in banks on the East Coast as well. Because of the kind of spiritual vacuum in America, people are treating work, whether they're working from home or in the office, they're treating it as religion. Do you think she's onto something? Uh, I saw your interview with her, fascinating. Um, I'm gonna pick up the book when I'm in the US in the next couple of weeks, because actually you you can't really get it unless that. Yeah, well, I'll introduce you to Carolyn, but what do you make of her thesis, intuitively anyway? Um, I've got some caveats. I mean, I, I, what concerns me about her 
narrative, although I'm really interested in reading the book, is the idea that it slightly errs on the side that, you know, we shouldn't like work, um, that work is not, you know, where it's at. And, and, mm. and to that degree, she's slightly, you know, with David Graeber's book, The Bullshit Jobs, and, and with James Sussman, the anthropologist who wrote about work. And actually... Yeah, I, and James was actually on the show. Um, his I, book, uh, Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots, is also an interesting book. I I do see a bit of a cultural divide between those people who think either for work-life balance and mental health or because they you know, don't want capitalism to continue or they want to reform it, although I'd love to see how they think they're going to do that, they're against work. And those who think you need to work, uh, and and I'm sort of unfraid in that in that camp. It's just that I want to reform the systems that mean that I don't believe work has to be dysfunctional. I don't believe work has to be necessarily unfair. I think there's a lot of evidence that you know when you are linking meaningful work, well run, well managed, well organized. Um, you can be very productive and work can be enjoyable. That's not to say that we have to work constantly and overwork, but it is to say that I'm not sure how helpful it is to say, well, work has become a religion because if it fills a role in people's lives in an increasingly atomized society, I don't know if that's such a bad thing. She she also we all will have to have you and Carolyn well, on, on the show at the same time. Uh, finally, Julia, um, what about you? You suggest that a lot of the management theory you think is a bit bunkish. Um, I had one of the leading management thinkers on the show last week. Keith Ferrazzi has a new book out, Competing in the New World of Work, How Radical Adaptability Separates the Best from the Rest. Some of us still want to be the best, whether we're working in the office or from home. Is there still competition, uh, Julia, in the nowhere office? And are there still successes and failures? Do we still need to read the Farazes of the world to figure out how we get on? Yes, although first we need to figure out how we go back to work in a way that is hybrid, that balances in-person and digital, because that, by the way, is the future. There is absolutely no going back from teleconferencing. In fact, we'll be teleconferencing in 3D increasingly. There's a lot of evidence that there is a greater sense of autonomy and equality, as well as the disassociation and disconnection and all those other things that are not so good. So we've got to get the basics of workability and working right and you know what? We need to dial down the talk about leadership. Full stop. I'm a bit over it. You're over it, but you are on lots of panels. You're on the Work Shift Commission of Demos. Well, I am the fat. I'm the chair. And you're I'm, leading it. Well, you yeah, always lead everything, Julia. So that goes without saying. <laughs> well, uh, but but, you but know, to end, let's talk very practically. We've talked in broad terms about religion and happiness and equality and leadership. Uh, literature, blah, blah, blah. But what about when it comes, you're a very practical person. What about when it comes to improving the experience of work in the nowhere office in some of the work you're doing with organizations like Demos? What can we do practically in the next year or two to actually improve the quality of work, make ourselves happier, 
and build a fairer, better, richer society? Well, um, easy question. I always ask you easy questions. I'll try and condense 50,000 words sweated over into one for you, Andrew. Um, uh, First of all, the leader has to become the listener. Second of all, forget the five-year plan. You'll be lucky if you get to a five-month plan. Iterate into smaller teams. Give workers more freedom. Let them develop what success looks like. So overall, embrace this liminal nowhere place. I mean, nowhere is, of course, I hope a catchy title, but it is also an anagram of what now. What is liminal? Here. Excuse my ignorance. What do you mean by liminal? Well, it's an in-between space. We are not, you know, we're between. Neither here nor there. Yes, but we're also in the here and now and the now and the here, which not to be too tricksy is an anagram of nowhere. And the point is that the corporate world has been overly designed around fixing and setting scalable models. And I think that moment is actually passing into smaller, more iterative, experimental, um, less comfortable, but ultimately probably more productive, profitable, fairer work. Well, as always, when I talk to my old friend, Julia Hobsbawm, I learned something. Now I know what liminal means. I'm going to use it all the time. Uh, Julia, <laughs> congratulations on this wonderful new book. I hear it's number one all over the place on Amazon. I think it's probably because of my blurb. Uh, but in all seriousness, a wonderful achievement, tremendous book. I'm a big admirer and follower of all your work. And you lead us all, Julia. You're a pioneer of, of all things, office and economics related. Uh, What else should people be reading on the last day of March in 2022, in addition to your new book, um, uh, The Uh, Nowhere Office? I'm reading two completely different books by rather brilliant women, as it happens. Um, One is I'm reading um, a biography of um, uh, Mariah Theresa by by Christopher Hitchens. uh, In the Shadow of the Empress, which is just... Written like a blockbuster and is a fascinating story. And dare I say it, the story of Frederick the Great invading Silesia two and a half seconds after she became empress for the first time is a rather, you know, rather redolent of the times that we're in. So that's interesting. Um, I'm also reading a really fantastic book about work, the kind that gives me a considerable twinge of envy called All That We Are by Gabriella Braun, who is a... A psychotherapist and it's about it's just about the very very lived reality that we all bring our emotional selves to work and that work can't work if we aren't uh really uh, unpicking those knots so um i'm reading that i'm also reading um to a friend of mine who has recently been bereaved i'm reading him in installments over voice notes which I then send on WhatsApp. Um, I'm reading him a wonderful Colson Whitehead novel um, called Sag Harbor. Wonderful. And uh, finally, Julia, I always ask everyone this, although I know the answer to this one. Uh, if anyone asks me who ran the world, who's in charge, my answer would always be Julia Hobsbawm. But let me ask Julia Hobsbawm too. Julia, on the last day of March 2022, who's in charge? Who runs the world? The Julia Hobsbawm, the author of The Nowhere Office. Uh, well, not the managers, not the leaders, not the bosses, thank goodness. And um, to come back to my old friend Liminal, um, we are twixt and between. Whoever was running the world ain't running it now, and we've yet to see who's running.